Well, good morning, church. The scripture passage will be 1 Samuel chapter 2. I'm knowing the bulletin, it says we'll be starting at verse 16, but we'll actually be starting at verse 12. So as you turn there or flip there, uh, let me start off with a story. Um, you know, many times in life, we may encounter the question, either from others or from ourselves, where was God in this situation? Where was God in a particular situation? Where was God in the sense that God could have easily stepped in and stopped X, Y, Z from happening? Why didn't God step in? Or another way we would ask that question, where is God in this situation? We would wonder, God, why didn't you bring justice? It was delayed. It was not on time. Where, where were you, God? And so sometimes when we see those situations in other people's lives and our friends' or family lives or even our own life, and things don't make sense, we start to wonder, well, well this life, you know, now what is this equation that's going on? How do you make sense of any of this? And unfortunately, so sometimes many of us, we start to build our own equation that kind of works out all the what I should be living for, what I should be grasping a hold of right now is what makes sense to me, what makes, brings most happiness to me in the moment. So I'll talk about two stories. The first story is something, a story that's somewhat familiar, depending on what group you're in or how old you are. But this first story begins in the year 1955, and we're in the jungles of Ecuador, South America. You see, five missionary families that come together, and their goal is to bring the gospel message of Jesus Christ to an unreached people group. Now, what makes this kind of unique is that this people group, they're extremely isolated. Nobody knows where they're at in this jungle. They don't really make contact with outsiders. So that's the first point. But the second point is this. When they do make contact with outsiders, they kill them. They spear them to death. They're known for their violence. Not only are they violent with outsiders, but they're violent amongst themselves. As a matter of fact, uh, one anthropologist had estimated out of 10 Waudani deaths, Waudani is this people group, out of 10 deaths, six of them are a result of homicide, murder. Just, just think about that. Six out of 10 murdered. So these five, five missionary families, of course, they spend a lot of time planning, preparing, praying, trying to strategize. How do we find this people group? And then how do we share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with them? So one of the missionaries, he's a, he was a pilot, and so he flew his plane over the jungle, and he spotted the Walidani. And so they were extremely happy about that. You know, you know, that part of their planning, their phase was complete. They actually found the people now the next step is to actually make contact. And so again, this is over a period of months, they planned, prayed, etc. They develop a plan. Hey, well, what we'll do is we'll send a gift basket from the plane, lower it down from a rope, and give it to the Wadani and let them know that we are friendly. We know, mean no harm. And so they did that a number of times to build up credibility with this people. And one time, actually, the gift was reciprocated. The Wadani actually put a gift in the basket and sent it back to them. So that was a huge milestone. They found out, hey, we actually have good re working relationship with these people. 
So the next step came. Now to actually meet them face to face to bring the gospel. Again, prayed, planned over a period of time for this. So the five husbands of these missionary families, they went off in the airplane to go meet the Wadani. They meet them face to face. They build up a relationship, and things work out for the first couple of days. Actually, things go so well that they actually take up one, one of the Wadani in the airplane and circle around the jungle so that they could see what the jungle looks like from up above the trees. So things were going extremely well. What was unbeknownst to the missionaries was that there was internal strife within the Wadani, these group of people. There was internal strife, and one thing led to another where they had to, they felt the need to use violence. And through a series of events, a series of lies, it was determined that the missionaries had to be killed, right? They meant harm, not good. And so the five missionaries, the husbands, they were speared to death. So Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming, and Roger Udarian, they were all killed. Their ages ranged from 27 to 32. Actually, all of them left wives. Some of them left children behind. In fact, Jim Elliott, his daughter, was just a few months old. So, where was God in this situation? What, what was going on? You know, Jim Elliott, well before he traveled and went on this missionary endeavor in Ecuador, South America, he wrote something in his journal years before. And he wrote this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now I'll say that again. He is no fool who can give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now this first story, <laughs> pretty straightforward. And actually this second story is pretty straightforward too. There's going to be a lot of contrast. We're going to talk about two fools in the scripture passage. And while we may say, well, it's pretty obvious, these, these are two idiots, right? Uh, if we dig deeper, we may find even reflections in their lives and ours. So let's go to the passage. 1 Samuel, chapter 2, starting at verse 12. It reads this way. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling, with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast. For he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now. And if not, I'll take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, 
May the Lord give you children by this woman. For, for the petition she asked for the Lord of the Lord, so that then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how he lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil de dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Now, we kind of just jump right in the middle of a story. As with any story or with any teaching, whether it's from the Bible or outside the Bible, context means everything. Context, context, context. So let's just take a pause right now, just zoom out and get a bird's eye view of what's going on here, because that'll make more sense, this story will make more sense within context. So this story takes place in a time period when Israel was ruled by judges. Now, when I use the term judges, don't think of someone who's sitting at an elevated desk, you know, determining right from wrong, who's guilty and innocent. The time period of judges was a time period where God would raise up certain leaders within Israel to guide them, to lead them out of oppression. Because what was going on was that the people of Israel, they're going in a downward spiral. They would rebel and forsake God. And then God would judge them by bringing their enemies upon themselves and, and, and overtaking them and oppressing them. And finally, the Israelites would call out to God and say, God, will you rescue us? Will you save us? So God would hear their requests, hear their prayers and cries, and would deliver a savior, a judge. When a judge would die, Israel would go back into a spiral of disobeying and going against God. This would go on and on for year after year after year. And actually, it was getting worse and worse. Again, this time period, the end of Judges. So this is after Moses had already led the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. This is after Moses had given the law from God through Moses to the people at Mount Sinai, also called Mount Horeb. This is after the people of Israel had rebelled against God, did not enter the promised land, so they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And also, this is after they had already entered the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, who came after Moses. So Joshua, who led the people, he dies, and his entire generation dies. So now we have a new generation, and none of them actually knew God. They didn't even follow God. And that started the time period of the Judges. The reason why I'm bringing it up is not only does this time period happen towards the end of Judges, but then also there's a young boy here who's mentioned. His name is Samuel. He actually winds up being the last judge. He's only a boy here, but he winds up being the last judge. And there's kind of this theme within the book of Judges, this theme that gets repeated time after time, is that there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. As a matter of fact, the book of Judges, that's actually the last verse. That's how it ends. <laughs> there was no king in Israel. People did whatever was right in their own eyes. So that's the bird's eye view of what's going on here. 
And in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we kind of focus down on one family, kind of on one person in the first chapter, and her name is Hannah. Now, Hannah, she's married to a guy named Elkanah. But Elkanah, he's married to both Hannah and another woman named Penina. So he has two wives. One is his wife, Penina. They have multiple kids. They have so many kids, they don't know what to do with them, right? But then Hannah doesn't have any kids. Now, Scripture does talk about that kids are a blessing from God. Whether or not people believe that or not, they are a blessing from God, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that if you don't have kids, <laughs> that God is upset with you, that there's something wrong with you, that God is judging you. But yet, Penina, she was like just really digging it in to Hannah. Just really digging it in. You don't have any kids. I have so many kids who are coming out of the woodwork, and you have none. God must not like you. And she would tease her and, 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 and bombard her, make fun of her all the time. And finally, Hannah just couldn't take it. So she pleads out to God, saying, God, please give me a child. Give me a son. If you give me a child, I'll give that kid back to you. And thanks, giving, and honor. As a matter of fact, Scripture says that God had closed up Hannah's womb. <laughs> what, what's going on there? You, you tell me that God closed up? He was the one responsible for her not having kids? That's another topic, another sermon for another day. But yes, that's true. But God grants her request, and she has a son named Samuel. So Samuel, Hannah, once Samuel's weaned, he, she gives him back to God, and he serves at the temple. All right, so that's all the players involved. And so now we're getting to these two sons of Eli, right? Their names are Hophni and Phinehas. Eli's the high priest. He's old. He's getting, uh, you know, advancing years. And so he has his sons help out, Hophni and Phinehas. And in this passage, we're going to go through a series of three snapshots, right? And there's going to be lots of contrast between these snapshots. Not much comparing. There's not much similarities going on between these three snapshots. It's going to be like, one of these pictures does not look like the other, right? And so we're going to go with snapshot one. And if I were to title these snapshots, the first snapshot or a title, Taking from God and His People. Taking from God and His People. It starts at verse 13. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. You know, just by a plain reading of this passage, you probably get a sense that something's not right. You know, maybe you can't point your finger on it, but you get a sense that something's not going right, even without understanding the history involved. So let me just go just a little bit into the history. So after the people of Israel entered the Promised Land, you know, there are 12 tribes, kind of 12 family groupings, large family groupings of Israel. And the land of Canaan was divided amongst 11 of the 12 tribes. The 12th tribe, the tribe of Levi, they didn't get any land. But the Levites were set, up, set aside as priests. They were supposed to guide Israel in their worship of God. And so, the, so the Levites were spread amongst all the other tribes. They were responsible for proper worship of God. 
Now, since they had no land, they couldn't really raise cattle, etc., and provide for themselves, so the people of Israel were supposed to give food to them. Actually, a portion of the sacrifice to God was to go to the priests so that they could sustain themselves, right? But we see here, we don't necessarily know when, how, or why this started, but you see here, Hophni and Phinehas, they're doing something totally different. You see in Deuteronomy chapter 18, as well as Leviticus chapters 3 and 7, God sets aside certain laws, certain rules of how the priests should get their food, which portion of the sacrifice. As a matter of fact, to be more specific, they're supposed to have the right leg and the breast. You find that in Leviticus chapters 3 and 7. But you see here, there, there's some sort of three-pronged fork thing going on. They're sticking in the meat, they're pulling it up, whatever pulls up is theirs. We already know that something has gone amiss. <laughs> but yet the people of God, they, they know the right way. They have scripture. But yet the priests aren't following it. So that's the first sign that something's going wrong. Then we jump to chapter, or, uh, verse 15. It says this. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, or he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Also in Leviticus chapters 3 and 7, it's prescribed that the sacrifice for God, the most choice part of the meat, of the animal, was the fat, <laughs> That's the most choice part. And that's supposed to be totally 100% sacrifice to God. You were forbidden to eat of it. But yet you see, Hophni and Phinehas, they want that for themselves. They want the best part of God's sacrifice for themselves. I, I mean, these guys are corrupt. Like, like, these guys are bad, right? Well, that's the first snapshot. <laughs> Taking from God and his people. Now we jump to a second snapshot. If we're to title this second snapshot, I'll say, title it this way, giving to God and his people. Giving to God and his people. And it's a stark contrast of what we just read. So starting at verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. His mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. And I'm going to break out this second snapshot, which is three items. And just pay attention to these three items because we're going to revisit kind of a similar three items in the third and last snapshot. So the first is this. We see that there's nothing like a mother's love. You know, some of us in our room have experienced that. And some of us as mothers hope to uh, show that towards our kids. Now, there really is nothing like, the, like it in the world as a mother's love. You can kind of see that here. First of all, Hannah had already given up her request for a son, for a kid, Samuel, and had given him to the Lord to serve at the temple. But not only does she do, uh, do that, she gave up Samuel, but also she gives a gift to Samuel every year, a little robe, a little ephod that he could wear as he's serving God. 
And on top of that, even with this corruption, even with the corruption of Hophni and Phinehas with the sacrifices to God, Hannah still herself sacrifices and worships God. She is faithful even in the midst of corruption. And so Hannah, throughout this uh, uh, passage, you only see Hannah in the first couple of chapters of Samuel, but Hannah shines so much as faithfulness and trusting in God. She really is a hero here. So there's nothing, number one, there's nothing like a mother's love. Number two, you see Eli's blessing. Eli blesses Hannah and Elkanah. He says that, hey, for your sacrifice, for your giving to the Lord, not only of Samuel, but your yearly sacrifice, may the Lord grant you more children, and they have more children. And that leads us to the third part. God gives life. He brings life to Hannah and Elkanah with additional children over and above Samuel. So the first snapshot was taking away from God and his people. The second snapshot was giving to God and his people. And the third snapshot is this, God's taking away. God's taking away. It starts here in verse 22. Now Eli was very old and kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against the man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put him to death, them to death. You know, just when you thought the sins of Hophni and Phinehas couldn't get any larger <laughs> with the sacrifices and taking from God and his people. Then you find out this. They're, they're sleeping with the uh, women outside the temple. You know, these are not obviously your ideal priests. They're bringing shame to God. They're it's bringing shame to God's name and to God's people. And it's no secret. It's open sin. <laughs> Everybody knows it within Israel. And so before we talked about the mother's love, here we'll see a father's displeasure. You see Eli, and it's nothing like a father's displeasure. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. Not only do you see a father's displeasure, in the previous section we saw Eli's blessing, here we kind of see Eli's warning. Eli's warning, he says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede them? I mean, you know, you can't go, God is as high as it gets, right? <laughs> you sin against him, like, like, who else are you going to go to, right? He's saying you guys are messing up. Before we saw God giving life, and now we're seeing God taking life. It says, but they would not listen, meaning Hophni and Phinehas, they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Okay, let me, let me repeat this because I don't want to steamroll through this because you, you might have thought you heard something, but the text actually says something different. I'll read it again, I'll explain it. But they would not listen to the voice of their father for or because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. <laughs> so, so let me explain this. God's, part of God's judgment was that they could not listen or hear 
to God's warning. <laughs> and then God judged them for it. I, I know it sounds confusing, right? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll break this out here. I just want to make sure that it's clear. Let me say it again. God made it so that they could not hear God's warning. And then they were judged for it. Now, this section cannot be divorced or separated from what happened previously, right? <laughs> Hophni and Phinehas, they know as priests of how they should serve God and, their people, and God's people. They, they know God's law. They know his requirements. But yet, they're disobeying God. They're rebelling against him. They're stealing from God and his people. And this goes on and on and on. It gets to a point where they can't even respond with repentance. Because they, can't, they don't even hear the voice of God anymore. And so God righteously judges them. This is not injustice. God righteously judges them for what they've done. And so just to think about our, our own lives or other people's lives, it's a blessing from God to have conviction, to have warning, to have ears to hear and a heart to respond to God's calling in your life. Because it will get to a point where you can't even respond. And there are examples of that in the scripture. You, you don't even hear God's warning. You can't even repent. You, don't, you can't even respond. And that's part of God's judgment. So now I've done just a bunch of teaching here, just teaching this passage. And then how do we apply it to our lives? It'll be quick, right? Just a couple of application points. How do we apply this to our lives? The first point of application is this. It's formed as a question. What are you holding on to that is destructive? What, what are you holding on to, reaching for, cherishing, whatever the case may be, that is destructive? What? That's right, what? <laughs> Sin. Sin always desires to destroy you, Okay? Sin always desires to destroy you. It doesn't matter how, sin, how small you think that sin is or how controllable you think that sin is. It always desires to destroy you. Sin never stays small. Sin never stays hidden. And sin never has your best interest. Let me say that again. Sin never stays small. Sin never stays hidden. And sin never has your best interest. You know, just thinking through this, it just reminded me of a uh, story within Scripture. In Genesis chapter 4, we're introduced with a couple brothers, two brothers, Cain and Abel. Both of them make sacrifices to God. God accepts Abel's, but not Cain's. And Cain gets, he gets upset. He gets angry at God. And it's just growing, it's, it's, it's welling within him. But, but God warns him. He actually comes to Cain and talks with him. And he warns him. He teaches him about something about sin. And he says this. It's in chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. And God says this. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. He's, he's warning Cain. He's like, there's sin and it's crouching at the door. I mean, I mean it's ready to pounce. <laughs> it's ready to jump on you. It's ready to destroy you. I'm warning you of it. 
take note of it, yeah. you must overrule it. So how is God warning you? How is God warning me with sin? God is warning us. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> He's always warning us. Through scripture, <laughs> through the church, even through the condemnation of the world, what we see going around us. God is warning us. How is God warning you with your own sin? What are you holding on to that's actually destroying you? Some things don't take much thinking, contemplating. Like, we know what some of these things are. Now, there are some things that we're totally unaware of, and that's where the church and others is useful in our sanctification. But there are other things that we're completely aware of. What are you holding on to that's destroying? Repent. Turn to God while you still have opportunity. And the second question is this. The second point of application is this. What should you give that brings life? What should you give that brings life? You know, sometimes we believe that we're speaking life into a situation when we're only speaking death into a situation. We think that we're speaking hope into a situation, but... We're only making things worse. Eli, he fell far short in warning his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Yes, he gave a verbal warning, but he fell far short. Now, just make it clear, Hophni and Phinehas, they're, they're, they're grown men. They're grown adults. They're, they're, they're outside the household, right? <laughs> so it's not like they're kids within Eli's household. But still, Eli's the high priest, and he's still a father figure in their life. But all he does is just give a verbal warning to them. But yet he kind of turned a blind eye to their sin. He didn't go beyond just giving them words. He could have removed them from their position. Because actually they served under Eli. And we didn't actually read this part in the passage, but later on in chapter 2, an uh, unnamed prophet, he comes to Eli, and he actually gives them a message from God. That God is going to judge Eli. God's going to judge their sons. God's going to judge their entire uh, family for their sins. And this prophet, he, he, he kind of gives an idea. He kind of lets us in, kind of see a sneak peek of what, how Eli was processing everything. And he says this in verse 29. He says, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every, every offering of my people Israel. So this is God talking through this unnamed prophet to Eli and saying, you were actually honoring your sons and yourselves and yourself above me. You felt like your sons deserved better, deserved better in life, either in position or things, more than the honor that I deserve as God. So we see that was going on within Eli's heart and his mind. And that's why he, he probably didn't go far enough in warning and admonishing his sons. So the question is this. He loved his sons, for sure, without a doubt, as a father. But yet, in his loving his sons, he didn't do the loving thing for them. So in our lives, do we desire honor 
and favor of man above God? Do we think we're loving our neighbor and loving each other within this church, but we're not really doing the actual loving thing <laughs> by warning each other, by guiding each other, by encouraging each other? We're, we're holding back in our words. We're, we're, we're holding back in our relationships. <laughs> we're holding back because we don't want to offend, but hey, my offense, your offense, that's what matters most. God's offense we can always ask forgiveness for, right? We don't need to worry about that. <laughs> there's, there's something wrong with that picture. <laughs> we see what happens to Eli and his two sons. Whether it comes to children, whether it comes to family, whether it comes to friends, how are we to properly, biblically, love them? And not love like the world loves. This world is passing away, but God's going to remain forever, right? This, this world does not have the final say. Whoever in your life does not have the final say. God always and forever had the final say. And he will judge us all. So in closing, I started off with a story about these five missionary families. As a matter of fact, three years after the five murderers. A couple of spouses. So uh, uh, Elizabeth Elliot and her young daughter Valerie uh, Elliot had the opportunity to come back and live with the same, very same people who murdered her husband and father. Rachel Saint, who was Nate Saint's brother, had the opportunity to come back and live with the very same people who murdered her brother. Actually, Steve Saint who's roughly about nine years old or so, he comes back with them as well and lives with the very same people who murdered his father. The whole reason for this is that they wanted to share the gospel with these people. They wanted to continue that missionary endeavor of sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it goes beyond pain and loss. It goes beyond losing a spouse, a father, a friend. That this same message is reserved for them as well. They lived with them for a few years. And you know what? They came to Christ. That entire generation, okay, so we're talking about generation after generation of violence, violence, violence. Six out of ten deaths are the result of murder, homicide. And in one generation of them being introduced to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that violent homicide rate was reduced by 90%. And one generation. It's all because these people like Elizabeth Elliot, Valerie Elliot, Rachel Saint, and others, they prioritize the gospel message of Jesus Christ over their own pain and loss. Jesus Christ is the alternative to every way of learning, living. Jesus Christ is the alternative to every way of living. There's no bigger problem in the world than sin. There's no other solution to sin than Jesus Christ. Out of all the problems that you can think of in this world that plague us from generation to generation, yes, those are real problems. There are real issues. But none of them compare to the problem and issue of sin. And of all the solutions to problems in the world that there are, and there are solutions, 
But there's no solution to sin other than Jesus Christ. You know, there's this story. <laughs> I have a, uh, a uh, mentor. I meet with him every once in a while. And he was telling me the story of uh, how he was giving counsel to a young man. This young man was not a Christian. He was not a believer. But yet he came to him as a pastor, just wanting some advice, seek some help. He needed to uh, improve his life in a particular area. So he asked him, hey, how can I overcome this in my life? How can I become a better person? My mentor had mentioned, well, sure, I, I can help you with that for sure. There are some solutions that I can give. But, but please understand this. That's, that's the least of your concerns. <laughs> that's the least of your worries. <laughs> you die right now, you're standing before a holy God. That's, that's a real issue. That's a real concern. So yeah, I'll, I'll help you with this. But understand, that pales in comparison to your primary issue. You know, if we could just, just snap our fingers and all the social ills of the world will go away, you know, world hunger, violence, <laughs> anger, if we just snap our fingers, that all goes away, would we be satisfied? Do we even desire people to have a relationship with God? Or do we just desire people just not to deal with all these other issues? Don't get me wrong, those are real issues. <laughs> but if we were to snap our fingers and say, all that goes away, <laughs> like, would we be happy? We'd say, yes, we finally made it as humanity. We finally made it as society. Yeah, but <laughs> society's still burning. <laughs> Society still has to stand before a holy God. You know, there's this cathedral in Germany, and there's an inscription within this cathedral. And this is what it says. It says, You call me master, and obey me not. You call me light, and see me not. You call me way, and walk not. You call me life, and desire me not. You call me wise, and follow me not. You call me fair, and love me not. You call me rich, and ask me not. You call me eternal, and seek me not. You call me gracious, and trust me not. You call me noble, and serve me not. You call me mighty, and honor me not. You call me just, and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. Father God, we want to thank you for the opportunity to be here as a gathered assembly, your church coming to worship you, coming to hear your word and apply it to our lives. May you grant us ears to hear and a heart to respond to your word, to your leading. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We ask for your wisdom. We ask for your discernment to know what is worth living for in this life, what is worth grasping a hold of in this life, and what is worth letting go. Lord, may we value you above all else. May we value you above man. Help us to forgive one another. Help us to love one another. And help us to always be faithful to you. In the holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.